Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, it's great to see you. It's great to see, well, great to know those online. I can't see you, can I? But I can see the camera, and you're peering at us through that little lens there. But uh, get all this set up. Um, you're very welcome to come on the church walk next Saturday, uh, meeting at 2 p.m. at uh, Cresswell Crags, just into Derbyshire. Um, if you don't know where it is, want more details, please do ask me uh, about that. I'd be glad to, to help you. Um, it's um, some kind of ancient uh, uh, cliff area, and uh, there's a museum, there's a cafe, uh, there's, there's a walk we can go on, uh, there's like areas where you can have picnic and so on if the weather's nice. So there's something for all people, whether you're able to walk for a bit or, or not. It won't be a massive walk, um, and uh, it's quite interesting historically and geologically, uh, the place. Don't believe all that you read in the museum, by the way, but we can talk, discuss that another time. But... Um, but anyway, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely time, hopefully, that we'll be able to have together uh, next Saturday afternoon. Thank you to all those who contributed and wrote to uh, the book um, of my 20th anniversary here in Newark. And uh, so thank you so much for all that and the gifts that uh, church has uh, blessed me with. So thank you, and Mandy as well, uh, blessed us with. And we really do, really do appreciate that. Very hard to take uh, in the nice way, <laughs> but, uh, but thank you so much. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you we've got open Bibles and we've got freedom to open them. We pray for our fellow Christians in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan right now. Lord, who to meet and to open their Bibles is a risky thing. And we ask that you draw close to them right now and help them, Lord, as they meet in small groups, more secretively. And we ask you to protect them and help them, Lord, to have good fellowship today and to know your blessing. Bless our dear brothers and sisters at Pelham Street. Please help Pastor Andrew there and bless the service, we pray. So now please speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you uh, like walking up uh, mountains. I'm just going to put this uh, extra digital recorder on. don't know whether you like walking up mountains. Who does? Who likes walking up mountains? Some hands going up there. I, I like walking up mountains. I used to love going to Wales and places like that and walking up the mountains. I, I could walk up mountains now, but I'm not sure I could get down so easily because my knees start to hurt after a while. But uh, I'd love to get up, but then you probably have to get me down by helicopter. But um, we'll see. But uh, it's lovely, isn't it, to go up a mountain, the mountain experience. Well, the disciples have started a wonderful experience, and uh, we've had a, a new series recently started. They were kind of almost in the middle of it now. Uh, we're looking at experiences that the disciples had and that Jesus had on mountains. And uh, we've looked at Temptation Mountain, where Jesus faced temptations, the D Disciple Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, where Jesus taught his disciples. We've seen how Jesus often went to lonely places and prayed to his Heavenly Father on mountains. And today we're looking at a Majesty Mountain, this Mount of Transfiguration. Now, at this point... When we come to Luke chapter 9, uh, and Matthew and Mark also record this event, we see how the disciples have started to follow Jesus and have been with him for some time now. They've been seeing lots and they've been learning lots about, about Jesus, of course, as they've got to know him, about God from the teaching and about the kingdom of God, what it means to be in God's kingdom and God's family. And now we come to a turning point in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, we come to a turning point where Jesus reveals the reason why he came into the world. So now it's becoming more clear to the disciples as Jesus explains. 
But the disciples are not going to like it. They're not going to like it. They're going to find it very hard to understand what Jesus now is saying to them. It won't fit in with their expectations. It's going to be very upsetting to them. Because their idea of the Messiah is that he will be a great and powerful military political king. But Jesus is saying to them, as they're getting more and more excited, as they see the miracles, hear the teaching, see the person, the character of Jesus, thinking that he's going to be the one who's going to be this great king, Jesus now is saying to them, I'm going to suffer and die. In Matthew 16, verse 21, it says there, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus begins to emphasize again and again after this point that he must be killed, he must, it's part of the plan, and he must be killed before being raised to life. It's something the disciples are going to be wrestling with right till even after the resurrection of Jesus. So it's going to be difficult for them to take in. Now add to that, Jesus is also increasingly making it clear from this point onwards that to be his follower is a fully-fledged commitment. It's your whole life signed up and signed over to Jesus. To be a Christian means that. It means living with a, a different worldview from the majority of people around you. It means to live with different priorities from the average person who lives around you. It also means it can cost you everything to follow Jesus. But of course, there's nothing compared to what is far better the things that Jesus brings to our lives and now and into the future than anything that we can give up through following him. In Matthew 16, 24, it continues, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So we sign up our life over to Jesus. It's a step of faith. It's not easy, but we find out we gain everything. We gain so much more. And then it says, Jesus says here, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So this is the kind of point in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel that we had read from earlier on, and Mark's Gospel that Jesus is coming to, that his disciples are facing. This is the turning point. So put yourself in the disciples' sandals right now. Strap those sandals on and there are some heavy and some deep things that the disciples and the would-be disciples, the, if you like the people around, there are some deep and heavy things that they're going to have to consider and that you are going to have to consider too right now. But then Jesus prepares something very special for three key leaders of the New Testament church and we see the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And we're looking at Matthew's Gospel now. We are also going to look at Luke as well. But as I said, this same account is in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And so we're going to look at it from these three uh, gospel writers. So the glory of Jesus. Matthew 17 verse 1. After six days, after this revealing that Jesus was going to die, this new emphasis, this new emphasis on the commitment of following Jesus, after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. We even got the, the music for that background there. We even got the amazing music here. So Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white 
as the light. So here we see a glimpse of glory, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. With all their struggles, with all that the disciples are now wrestling with, they're going to have a boost. They're going to have a great encouragement to their faith. They're going to have a glimpse of how great Jesus really is, the Son of God. Now these men, along with the other disciples, but these three men in particular, Peter, James and John, were, were starting to grasp who Jesus is. And Peter had stated that he now believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And we think he was speaking on behalf of, of a number of the other disciples who now have seen, have understood that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is the Son of the living God. But for these months that they've been with Jesus, what had their physical eyes seen? Their physical eyes had only seen a man, hadn't they? An ordinary looking man. They touched him. They put their arm around his shoulder. They maybe held his hand. They maybe had received things from his hand. And as they looked at his hands, it would remind them that he was a village carpenter for many years in Nazareth. Those leathery, tough, strong hands. A man. 31 years old about at this point. But we find out that he's agelessly, agelessly old too. His humanity, of course, was not his true beginning. That physical body that they saw, that 30-odd-year-old man, was, if, if you like, not all that is, there is about Jesus. You see, Jesus had become human in order to save us. He always was and still is the Son of God. And so this experience on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, was giving them a view of Jesus, the Son of God, behind the flesh, as it were. As he had always been, the Son of God, the glorious Son of God in heaven. And there's a verse in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, the letter that Paul wrote to the church there. And it reminds us of how the descent, as it were, of Jesus, who came from heaven down to this earth. And it says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, now note this, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That man with the leathery hands of the carpenter was none other than the eternal Son of God. Now, the Apostle Peter, who obviously was there firsthand seeing this experience on the mountain, he wrote about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him for ourselves. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain." Peter was there experiencing this and he writes about it. And it made a big impact upon his and the other disciples' lives. So, when we follow Jesus, when we become a Christian, who do we follow? We follow the loveliest of man, don't we? We follow the loveliest man. We follow the perfect man. We follow a real man who came to this earth. But we also follow the one who is the glorious Son of God. You can get no better, can you, than the combination of the loveliest man and the glorious, eternal Son of God. Now, the glory of Jesus, his, his body usually hid his glory. It was usually hidden by his body, his human body. And all his disciples saw was an ordinary man who ate and drank and slept and, and had to have clothes and got cold and tired, just like us. 
But here in this event, we can see his glory emerging through his humanity. The word transfiguration is a word which it comes from metamorphosis and it, it means a, a transformation from the inside out. So it wasn't as if simply that, if you like, God had opened a, a window from heaven and shone a light on Jesus. It wasn't simply that. It was more that the transfiguration, the, this transformation came from within. It was a revealing through his humanity, out through his humanity of who he really is. And we can see his glory emerging here. And God the Father helps and gives as he spoke and affirmed Jesus on this occasion. And we see this, this view of the glory of the Son of God. Now, of course, where's Jesus now? He did die. He did rise again from the dead. And he ascended back to heaven. And do you know what? He's kept that body. And that's something really hard for us to take in. And we often forget that. That Jesus, when he went back to heaven, he took that body with him. And one day we will see him with that body. And he took on that physical form for us forever and when we see him and see the scars in his hands the scars in his feet we will have that eternal reminder that he's the son of God the savior who died and paid the price for us so Jesus has kept that body but of course now his glory is not hidden in heaven and we see a lovely picture of that in Revelation chapter 1 we see this awesome view of Jesus in heaven right now Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. And it says this. This is the Apostle John. I saw, he says, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And this is amazing because Peter, James and John went up the mountain of transfiguration and saw that glory of Jesus revealed. But here, John later on is getting a vision of Jesus in heaven. And it's a lovely link. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, think about it for a while. If you're a Christian, this is your Christ, isn't it? This is your Christ. This is your Savior. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, this is your Lord. Now, of course, we have a, a, a vision here that John had, and there's an element of symbolism, no doubt, picture language in this vision, but the message is clear, isn't it, that comes across from this. Jesus still looks like a man, and yet he's pure and powerful. His glory is shining, his, and his view penetrates everything, eyes like a, a blazing fire. He's discerning, he sees and knows everything. He has utter authority. His word has complete and final say. He has conquered death. And he has authority over life itself in heaven. His glory is not hidden. And we know that this same Jesus will return to this earth. So again, think about this. When you go to, to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you go into your university studies tomorrow, if you stay at home and do the housework or look after the children or whatever it might be, or you're working from home tomorrow, this is your Lord and Saviour. This is your Jesus with you. 
in that situation. This is the same Lord who is with you by his spirit. And so when you face challenges this week, when you experience joys this week, he is the amazing person who is with you by his spirit and who is watching you from his glory from heaven. This Jesus, the glory of Jesus. So secondly, we see the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. Now let's turn to Luke's account now. Luke's account that uh, Chris kindly read from earlier on. So now remember that Luke wasn't one of the original disciples. Matthew was, and uh, no doubt he heard from the other disciples. Uh, Mark wrote down Peter's account, and Peter was one of those who went up the mountain. But, but Luke, of course, came a bit later on. He was a colleague of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't one of the original disciples, but he spoke to many people, and he collects eyewitness accounts. Uh, and, of course, we see how he's written down an account which ties in with the other uh, disciples, and uh, it's wonderful to see that. Now, uh, Matthew and Mark say that it was six days, exactly six days, after Jesus began to emphasise his death. Now, you might be looking at Luke's account here, think, ah, there's a contradiction here in the Bible, because Luke says eight days, eight days after. Well, Luke uses a generalisation, and I think in French, and in, I think, possibly German as well, but certainly in French, and again, in the language of the day, the way people spoke, eight days was an idiom meaning about a week. So eight days a week, it's a generalisation. So when Luke uh, says in chapter 9, verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he's actually tying in with what uh, uh, Mark's, uh, Mark's gospel and what uh, Matthew's gospel say. They say it more precisely, but Luke gives a generalisation. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now before this point, the disciples had walked up the mountain and they were tired. Now, maybe they'd done a lot of travelling, a lot of work, and they drift off to sleep. So imagine they've come up the mountain, Jesus has gone over there to pray, he's been praying for quite a while now, and uh, Peter, James and John are sleepy and they drift off to sleep. Now let's first of all ask, why just Peter, why just James and John? Why just those three? Well of course what they saw was amazing. And after the cross, they were allowed to talk about it. Jesus told them not to talk about it until then. And it's obviously recorded for us in the Gospels, because we're reading it now, and Peter writes about it as well. But if this amazing experience got out to the wider group of disciples, and into the public domain, as it were, then one of the problems was that it might stir up a revolution. Because remember, the Jewish population of the day were looking for a mighty Messiah to save them from the Romans. And there were revolutionary movements, there were zealots and so on. There were kind of, as the Romans would say, terrorists, or as the Jews would say, freedom fighters. There were revolutionary movements amongst the Jews, and the Romans are very quick to suppress them violently, any, any whiff of revolution at all. So this amazing experience isn't to be spread abroad, possibly because it would stir up revolutionary uh, movements amongst the Jews. But... This experience also needs to be understood in context, in the context of the cross. There's a theological context, there's a historical context to this experience that these three disciples had. Jesus came to suffer, not to fight physical battles. And the experience, of course, was a boost to these three disciples. It would be an encouragement to these key leaders. 
which they would then have in their hearts that encouragement that would then be a blessing to the other disciples. They might not be able to tell them yet the whole story, but they would say, we saw something good up there and it's great and we'll tell you about it later when Jesus allows us to. So there was an encouragement there for those three disciples in all that they're wrestling with that would no doubt cascade to the other disciples. And of course it was something and an event, an experience that was remembered and recorded later in the New Testament. And we have it now, as I said, we're reading about it now. But, but we also see that the way that Jesus was putting his trust in these three men. Now that might be a strange way to put it. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't trusting Peter, James and John in any fundamental saving way. Of course not. But he, he was entrusting these three men to see, to keep a secret for a time, and then to record and then spread the news of this experience for us, for the early church, of course, and for us. It's a simple observation, really, but it highlights how Jesus' mission involves people. Jesus relied on people. Jesus engaged with people, didn't he? And he entrusts this experience with these three disciples. Now, of course, the glorious Son of God doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need us. But throughout history, as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see how God chooses to engage with people. He, cho he chooses to engage with us. He chooses to involve us in his mission, in the mission of Jesus. And in a sense, in a limited sense, he chooses to rely upon us. So as you and I go from this mountain experience of Jesus this morning, let's remember that we've been entrusted with something very special. You've been entrusted with something this morning. You might not realise it, but now you do, because I'm telling you. You've been entrusted with an experience of Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, you've been entrusted with a view of Jesus that can make such an impact upon your life. You can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can know God, you can have a home in heaven. You can have so much through this message, this news about Jesus, this revelation of Jesus, through believing in him. You have a great responsibility after what you've heard. And for us, those of us who are already Christians, we have been entrusted with a view of Jesus that we need to take with us through the week and that we can bless and touch the lives of each other with encouragement for each other and an encouragement for our world around us. We've been entrusted with something very precious. We don't have to keep this vision quiet, do we? We're free to talk about it. But we've been entrusted with something very important to share. In a sense, Jesus has chosen to rely upon us to live in the light of this vision of Jesus and to tell the good news that comes from his now completed mission because we've seen and read the end of the book. It's been said before that the church is now the hands of Jesus to care. The church is the hands of Jesus to give. We are the body of Christ to show the example of how to live. We have been entrusted with the good news about him. People we know need the Lord, don't they? People need the Lord. We need to, him to be saved. But the Lord has chosen to rely upon his church. He's chosen to rely upon us with what he's entrusted to us to uphold and to communicate the gospel of Jesus to other people. You have a key role and don't think just of the next person next to you, well, she's got it, or he's got it, or they're better than me, or whatever. No, you, if you're a Christian, you've been entrusted with a key role. You are part of God's household, as 1 Timothy uh, 3 says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, on this mountaintop experience, we see how Moses and Elijah appear speaking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah were Old Testament characters. They, they died a long time ago. 
but they seem very much alive here. Verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, roughly divided up, the Old Testament Bible is the law and the prophets. The Jews often did that. They summarized it, the law and the prophets. Now, Moses was the key Old Testament character involving the delivering of the law to the ancient Israelites. And Elijah was a key dramatic prophet in the history of the Old Testament. So these two men represent the law and the prophets. They represent the Old Testament. They represent the before Christ era. And they represent what God was doing before Jesus arrived on planet Earth, while Jesus was still in heaven, the Son of God, in his glory in heaven. So they, these two characters represent what, Jesus, what God was doing before Jesus came to planet Earth. And their conversation now, on this mountain, with Jesus about his mission, shows that there's no contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes people say that, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament's old, therefore, it's out of date, it's, it's not, not worth anything. Ignore that. Uh, and people make those arguments that the Old Testament contradicts the New in various ways. But when you examine those contradictions, they don't hold water. And we see here, there's a, a perfect link between the old BC era and the AD, the era of our Lord, the year of our Lord. So it all joins together. And that's another amazing miracle about the Bible and about what God has been doing through history. And also this event, as Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus, shows us a little bit what life after death is like. Now that's a serious subject, especially if we've lost someone recently. If we know someone who's very ill, uh, if, we're, if we're a Christian, of course, we'll have a different view on death uh, than other people. But from a Christian perspective, we see Moses and Elijah... It says they appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure. They spoke about his death, his leaving this planet Earth back to heaven. So these men appeared. They were visible. They talked. They understood about the mission of Jesus. They were alive and they were very well, weren't they? They're better than before they died. They're better now. They were appeared appearing here in glorious splendor. And that's such an encouragement to us if we have loved ones who have passed away, those who, if we've lost Christian loved ones. And also for ourselves too. Death is a horrible thing to think about and to face up to. But we will be more alive. We will be better off then than we ever are now. There's hope. And as a Christian, we don't grieve like those who have no faith, do we? And so we have an encouragement here from this picture of of, of what we see here about Moses and Elijah. So something of the mission of Jesus. And then let, let's lastly look at the spotlight on Jesus. Because although the transfiguration comes from within Jesus, the, this transformation, this bright shining comes from within his, his character, who he is, it's also true that God the Father is using this incident to shine a spotlight on Jesus. Now it could have been a long walk up the mountain. Uh, if you, has anyone ever been up Snowden? Snowden, a few people. Ben Nevis? Anybody been up Ben Nevis? Any, wow, that's amazing. Anybody been up other mountains? Yes, yeah, some, some of you put your hands up earlier. You said you liked going up mountains, but it doesn't mean necessarily you went up them. But anyway, so you've experienced what it's like to be tired and get to the top of a mountain and the relief. Now, of course, when you get to the top of a mountain, sometimes you have your sandwiches, you have your flask of coffee, and then you start to walk down again. But when these disciples got to this mountain... 
Jesus starts praying. And he's praying. And he's praying. Now, I don't know about you, whether you've tried to pray for a long time. I've been to some long prayer meetings. And uh, sometimes, you, especially if you've had a hard day, if it's late or if it's early in the morning, you feel a bit tired. And it's easy, isn't it, to start to, to drop off. I remember once uh, we, we were on a camp uh, years ago in uh, Cambridgeshire, and uh, a friend of, my, of mine, uh, Steve, we, um, we, we went in one of the spare tents because we thought we'd, we'd pray for the young people on this camp. And so we thought we'd spend all night praying. That was the intention. And we got on our knees and we were praying away and we prayed for this person and that person and we prayed for this, that and the other. And, uh, and then after a while, of course this was night time, I remember suddenly hearing an amen and woke up because I'd fallen asleep on my knees as I was praying. It's really hard to pray uh, through the night, to pray for a long time. Well, we can understand these disciples, they, they drifted off. In Luke chapter 9, verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So the disciples, they didn't see Jesus, as it were, uh, sorry, when Jesus was praying, they, they fell off to sleep. Uh, and then it's as they woke up, it's as they came to their senses that they saw this, this brightness of Jesus and, and saw these two men speaking to him. So they're coming awake and then seeing this. Now Luke 9, verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And uh, Luke comments here in brackets, he did not know what he was saying. So the three disciples were tired, very tired. Uh, and as they roused back to awareness, they realized that Jesus was there. And he was transformed. He was transfigured. And these two men talking with him. And they pick up somehow from what they see, from what they hear of these men talking, that it's Moses and Elijah. And they realize that this experience is amazing. Uh, and Elijah and Moses, they seem to be leaving now. And Peter, understandably, understandably, wants his experience to continue. We want good times to last, don't we? We don't want to go home when we're experiencing a good time. And he says, without thinking, about building some shelters. Maybe he's got an idea of some kind of a, a shrine, I don't know. But, uh, but maybe he, he, he wants these men to stay because he wants to extend this experience for Jesus, for Moses and Elijah to stay. He might be thinking like this. This could be the headquarters of the kingdom of God on earth. We've got these three big hitters now. We've got Jesus of Nazareth. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah, these great Old Testament characters. This is the dream team. This is the headquarters here on this mountain of the, the kingdom of God on earth. We're going to get those Romans. We're going to sort out. Israel's going to be great again. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah can't get better than that. But God the Father interrupts him, verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Matthew 17 puts it this way. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one 
except Jesus. Imagine the scene. God the Father says about His Son, My Son, whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. I have chosen Him. Now, each of these phrases would be so lovely, wouldn't they, for Jesus, the Son of God, to hear. My Son, my child. And each of these phrases would be so important for the disciples to hear as well. They are important for us to hear because the Father validates and affirms His Son. So when you hear the Gospel to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, we have the Father's seal of approval on that message, don't we? Because we have the Father's seal of approval on Jesus Himself. Jesus says that the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and who believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. So if you're going to commit yourself to, to Jesus for the hope of the resurrection from the dead, to have eternal life, then you, you, you need to have an assurance, don't you? Who you're trusting, who you're believing. Well, the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I'm well pleased. And also, this voice, in a sense, what the Father says is saying something else. Don't make a fuss about Moses. Don't make a fuss about Elijah. I want you to listen to my son, Jesus. Now, of course, Moses brought us the first five, chapter, first five books of the Bible. And there's a lot that we can learn from that. Elijah was there too. There's lots we can learn from him, his life and his teaching and the rest of the Old Testament. These men were amazing characters, not to be dismissed. But above and beyond all voices, above and beyond all characters, the voice says, listen to and follow Jesus. Matthew 17, verse 6 again, says this. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now just imagine that they looked up and saw no one except Jesus. Doesn't that dramatically emphasize that the spotlight needs to be put on Jesus? When we make Jesus our top priority, when we actually understand what Moses and Elijah had to say, we actually understand, therefore, better what Moses and Elijah had to say. You see, Jesus is the, the key to understanding the message of Moses in the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible summarized by Elijah. Above all voices, above all characters, the Father says, listen to my son. Jesus, of course, is the way to be saved. We need to listen to him. We need to believe in him. But he's also the key to unlocking and understanding the rest of the Bible. Another wonderful thing here is how that the Father expresses that he is totally satisfied and proud and loves and affirms his Son. And, and would you expect anything less about Jesus? Of course not. But even so, we're still thrilled and delighted to see the Father's love for his Son. It's always lovely, isn't it, to see a parent's love for their, for their child. To see the father's delight in his, uh, in his love for his son. But let's ask the question as we draw to a close. How does God the Father view us? The father loved his beautiful son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. How does God the Father view us? Well left to ourselves of course he loves us, he made us, but he sees the truth about us. He sees that we're sinners, that we're rebels. He sees that we're failures to keep his laws of love. He sees that we are guilty. And he has to respond 
to us as a judge with justice. When we become a Christian, when we believe in Jesus, the, the spiritual miracle takes place. Everything about us that would displease God the Father was taken from us by Jesus who died in our place. And now everything about Jesus that pleases God the Father is credited to us. Do you realise that? When you became a Christian, everything about you that would displease and bring the wrath of God upon you has been taken away and Jesus died in your place. And now everything about Jesus that the Father affirms and approves of, everything that pleases God the Father, is credited to you. Another way of putting it is this, that left out in the open, as it were, left to ourselves, we look like sinners because we are. But in becoming a Christian, we become in Christ. We become in Christ. So what do we look like now? We become like the beautiful child that the Father loves. So when God looks at you, in all your weaknesses and failures and struggles, what does he see? A sinful, failing person. No, he sees the son that he loves, in whom he's well pleased. And so we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, as Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us. The glory of God, the majesty of his son, the holiness of his spirit should rightly cause us great fear. But because of Jesus... We experience his touch and we hear his voice saying to us, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And what do we find? We find that we are accepted in the son who is loved. We find we're accepted as the very son. Now let me ask you the question, are you in the son that the father loves? Are you in the son that the father loves? Are you willing to be entrusted with the responsibility of this majesty mountain experience with Jesus. As you go into the rest of this week, are you willing to be entrusted and to follow through? Are you willing to be a key encourager? Now, in a congregation of people, in a fellowship, in a home group, there are people at any one point in time who are really finding it hard, finding they're battling with doubts and fears and temptations. But there'll be other opportunities for people who are experiencing that encouragement, that mountaintop experience, that vision of who Jesus is. Are you willing to be a key encourager of your fellow Christians? To be that encourager, like these three were chosen to be, Peter, James and John. How can you encourage your fellow Christians this week? Do you realise how God sees you or how he can see you? Do you recognise that without Christ, he sees you as you are, as a sinner, guilty, who needs to be saved. Do you realise how he can see you in Christ as he sees his precious, wonderful son? Having had this glimpse of the glory of Jesus this morning, how will you live the rest of your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to live in the light of it. Help us to be wise and faithful in how we take this vision that we've been entrusted with, this news about him. Let us live it out in the coming days. Let us let it sink in deep so that our lives are changed, not just for a week, but forever. And Lord, help us to be an encouragement to each other with our personal vision of Jesus, helps to be a blessing 
as we grasp who he is and seek to be a blessing to our fellow Christians. Lord, we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.